I'm Adam Coleman, and welcome to The Cosmic Library, the show about interpreting those super-familiar things that defy interpretation. This is episode three of Mosaic Mosaic, our season following tangents from the Hebrew Bible. As mentioned already, the Bible is in basically every hotel room, something like every motel room. It's a book people read at night, and as befits a night book, it can have the quality of, and it does have descriptions of, dreams. Jacob, grandson of Abraham, Jacob whose name would become Israel, dreams of angels ascending to the heavens. Jacob's son, Joseph, dreams and interprets his dreaming in a tense scene with his siblings. Here's Robert Alter's translation. Joseph dreamed a dream and told it to his brothers, and they hated him all the more. And he said to them, Listen, pray to this dream that I dreamed. And look, we were binding sheaves in the field. And look, my sheaf arose and actually stood up. And look, your sheaves drew round and bowed to my sheaf. His brothers then plot to kill Joseph, but end up flinging him into a pit. And then Joseph gets sold, brought to Egypt, where he actually thrives as an interpreter of dreams. In time, other descendants of Jacob, aka Israel, join Joseph in Egypt. There's a reconciliation, and the story of the Israelites continues from there into the eventual exodus from Egypt, led by Moses. All this prompts, almost requires, interpretation. That means interpretations of dreams and interpretation of dreamlike thinking. Sigmund Freud's specialty. And so, in this episode of Mosaic Mosaic, when we're thinking about dreams and interpretation of them, we're thinking about Freud, along with Joseph, along with Jacob. We're thinking about analyzing a kind of literary mystery. And here's maybe one way into the mystery. The novelist Joshua Cohen sees in biblical dreams a familiar biblical tension between social, political pressures and something more boundless. I find the dreams in the Torah to be deeply, disappointingly didactic. I tend to doubt, you know, these ladders and angels or these stalks of wheat or these, you know, fat cows and skinny cows. It seems to me to be um, highly, highly demonstrative and overly obvious. I think that there is a fear of dreams. And, you know, in a culture that kind of fears dreams because it is this kind of wild approximation of you know, a space beyond our waking lives, a space beyond our conscious lives, it, something that is maybe closer to the realm of the afterlife or of the divine than, you know, waking and walking around your fields. There's a hope of taming dreams in the Bible. I think the reason why these dreams are presented so, um, the dreams that are presented are so, are so clear, kind of so obviously fake and didactic, to my mind, is a way of taming dream space, denying dream space uh, its wildness. You know, if you let dreams run wild, who's to say that they don't become, you know, zones of idol worship? I think it's a way of, of sort of taming humanity's other access, its sleeping access to the divine. That's how I generally do it. And, you know, and, and the dream interpretation, which again is something that is practiced, you know, in the Bible an enormous amount. I mean, Yosef, Joseph, you know, is sort of the great practitioner with the Pharaoh. But at the same time, we should note that, you know, the Pharaoh has many Egyptian native Egyptian, let's say, uh, dream interpreters. And so there's already within the Bible this kind of idea that dream interpretation is an attempt to even further tame the dream state by relating everything to political realities. 
you received a dream from God because only God would speak as clearly as your dream was. And in fact, your dream was not some weird, you know, subconscious effluvium that you have to process about your sexuality or how you feel about your father, you know, the previous Pharaoh. It's in fact, very explicit political advice, like start storing up grain because people are gonna starve. It's a fantasy of monotheism that when one dreams, one is hearing instructions from a god about how to politically survive. That, to my mind, is not uh, how dreams work. And so, all, you know, dreams then in the, in the Bible seem to me to be, uh, you know, sort of rigged. Peter Cole, on the other hand, sees dreamlike qualities in the Bible. There's something about the writing itself that, if you read it carefully, if you read it closely, demands a kind of engagement, either because there's contradictions or because there's moral dilemmas or because there's textual dilemmas. And it's yet another way that being drawn into it is a way of being drawn out of yourself or beyond yourself. So there's some overlap there with what dreams do. I mean, I guess another another way of thinking about it is some scholars have talked about biblical characters or the ancients generally as being having more porous sense of self, a sort of less fixed boundary of where self starts and ends and other things and other presences begin. That's something that you feel very powerfully in the Bible with encounters with the divine, the divine often described like as with Jacob as a man, Abraham and the angels. There's this kind of porousness of, of presence and of, of powerful presence. And that is something I associate very much, not just with the dreams in the Bible, but with dream states, period, or quasi-dream states, right? We have all kinds of different phases of our, of our sleep and of different kinds of dreaming. But that porousness of consciousness where the boundary of self is blurred is, and, and, and scholars who talk about that talk about it as something that we've lost. Right, that's gradually sort of leached out of of experience. You know, maybe so, but in the dream state, we get an experience of it. We get a sense of it, and that's something that you can feel in these biblical stories, whether they involve dreams or visitations or encounters with the presence whether it's the presence of God or of angels or a sense of presence around specific places when they talk about holiness. That's something that's there in the biblical text in a powerful way. And it's something, as I say, that I think is encoded in the language. One can learn things about one's own poetry and about one's own writing through engagement with that. As a poet, that porousness of self, that receptivity is really a central value for me. It's also as a translator, of course. So the Bible's got a lot, I think, to teach us about that, to, to bring us back to that, to remind us of what that might plausibly feel like. This porous selfhood seems really modern, too. Seems to point us toward 20th and 21st century notions of selfhood. So I asked Peter Cole, is there a way that the modern sense of interpretation, associated with Freud, but not just Freud, has its roots in biblical interpretation? Is there a through line you trace between modern interpretation and interpretive adventure grounded in the Bible? There, there is. I got a letter yesterday from a, a doctor at the Mayo Clinic who's a, a friend and 
and a real great reader. He's just an amazing reader. And he's a kind of maverick doctor who he reads to his charges. He does, he's a hospitalist. So he supervises doctors, and especially young doctors, but on this, these marathon shifts they have to endure. And one of the things he does is he reads them often bits of literature and poetry and fiction, nonfiction, to sort of help attune them for their rounds. And he told me he read this poem two days ago. This is about Freud. It's from my, uh, my Tausk poem, the, the Invention of Influence. Freud said he could never be certain, in view of his wide and early reading, whether what seemed like a new creation might not be the work instead of hidden channels of memory leading back to the notions of others absorbed. Coming now anew into form, he'd almost known within him was growing. He called it the ghost of a cryptomnesia. So we own and owe what we know. For me, that's a kind of biblical dream state vision, but Freud's identifying it in his own consciousness, that that strange blurring when you're reading something or when you're thinking something, right? When you're thinking for yourself and you whether it's a poem or an idea or a turn of phrase, you suddenly have this kind of terror and confusion of, is this you or it just is this something that you read a long time ago coming back? Is this plagiarism? Is this originality? Is it something you've forgotten? That's the kind of hidden forgetting and hidden remembering the cryptomnesia. Uh, so we own and owe what we know. I think there's something in the Bible about that, that there's a sense of there is something in there that is waiting for us, and there's also something in there that we owe, obviously, the tradition, but that dynamic, that back and forth, is is just waiting to be activated by, by us as readers. Freudian interpretation of dreams or literature that works like dreams often means thinking about the most common, mundane, everyday things, even while contemplating the most wild stuff. Here's Tom DeRose of the Freud Museum in London. I mean, Freud is always interested in, of course, those ideas like dreams, the psychopathologies of everyday life, phenomena such as jokes and things. You know, these everyday things that we all still recognise today that fascinate us, that we find mysterious and, and sometimes confusing. Some of Freud's thought is influenced by, loaded with literary forms, literary motifs, literary strategies. What was his connection to literature? And then what was his connection specifically to the Hebrew Bible? You know, literature guides Freud's thinking all the way through. I mean, if you think about his relation to Goethe, you know, for example, you know, Goethe appears throughout Freud's texts, almost as a kind of paratext, a text, you know, Faust is is there throughout the 23 volumes of the Standard Edition. Freud holds, you know, literature incredibly close to his heart. And it's not only just a, a, a source of quotation, you know, it's there in the very fabric, I think, of the working out of psychoanalysis. Freud takes literature very seriously. If, if you think about, the, you know, the text Creative Writing and Daydreaming, there's a link there between the activity of the creative writer and the dream. If we think in uh, the interpretation of dreams, Freud's famous phrase that 
the interpretation of dreams is the royal road to the unconscious processes of the mind. That shows you this link between dreaming, between creative writing, between thinking, between daydreaming. All of these things kind of come together, I think, as a source of, of the material for Freud. Freud, as we already heard, had an encounter with the Bible that framed it via elaborate graphic design in terms of historical context. That Bible of Freud's was called the Philipson Bible. It seems like it, it suggested ways to think about the social life around religion. Is that it? By including those images, is that a prompt to think about religion in some kind of historical framing? I think that commentary and the images, I think everything, you know, it takes on a kind of life of its own, really. It, it's not the word per se, but it does have that historical dimension. So, you know, these images, they return later, actually, for Freud in his collecting habits and in his fascination with the with this kind of culture. It's also a fascination that someone like Thomas Mann shared, you know, with, a, with the tetralogy Joseph and his brothers, which Mann and Freud corresponded over. So, you know, I, th I think it was a very powerful thing for Freud, that, that notion that you could connect up these images, you know, with this text, with this archaeology. And archaeology, you know, it's, it's Freud uses the archaeological metaphor of the mind for psychoanalysis on many occasions. And it fixes very early on in his imagination this kind of relationship between the historic, the spiritual, the textual and interpretation and the image actually as well at that stage. If you think about interpreting dreams, there's this way that you're turning image into text. So I think that's very important for Freud. I'm really curious to hear about the Joseph dream connection and the Thomas Mann connection, Joseph is one of the famous dreamers in the Bible. What would Freud have to say about Joseph's dreams? And what did he say about Joseph to Thomas Mann? Pharaoh's dream that Joseph interprets in the Bible is only mentioned on, I think, three or four occasions in the interpretation of dreams. So it's a huge book, which is quite interesting, really, when you think about it. One of the, the most famous dreams. But Freud would call it an example of symbolic dream interpretation you know that there's a symbol there like this the seven kind or something and he interprets them symbolically this means this because of this and this means this and and he compares that to another kind of ancient dream technique that was undertaken by or, or established by artemidorus which he describes as a kind of crypto technique it's like a, the creating of a dream book if you have a dream, you would look in your dream book, you know, break it down in a granular way to see what thing refers to what, what means what, you know, there's a fixed meaning to dreams. Yeah, as far as man goes, I think it was more, just more this fascination that man also had for ancient Egypt. For his interest in the unconscious, just in general, in throughout his work, is threaded through his attention to social formation, his attention to culture. How... How does the unconscious live culturally for Freud? The thing with Freud is that he writes over a very uh, over kind of forty years or so. Psychoanalysis develops in that way, and he also takes a number of uh, makes a number of quite significant conceptual changes throughout his his work. I mean, the, probably the most profound being the introduction of the second dual instinct theory or drive theory after Beyond the Pleasure Principle, when he, where he introduces the uh, eros and the death drive. You know, after that work, we get to this analysis of, of cultural forms that comes immediately after that in group psychology, later in civilization and its discontents, also in, in works such as The Future of an Illusion. 
and the the you know society is seen then in in these kind of works as ways of trying to keep the death instinct at bay ways of trying to create formations and structures that keep away our inner death instinct when it's channeled outwards i mean that that's kind of one aspect of freud and the other aspect of freud which you might see in in the slightly earlier notion is the idea of kind of sublimation as well which on an individual level leads us to unconsciously transform in a way our desires our instincts and turn them into what freud calls you know higher and finer forms into into cultural achievements into so rather than rushing away with the satisfaction of an instinct there's a way in which that instinct can be transformed and turned into the production of art into the establishment of social systems and and contracts could you introduce the death instinct and then explain how it relates to repetition compulsion how it relates to maybe ritual Freud writes this in the Beyond the Pleasure Principle in 1920. So we're talking just after the First World War, in the middle of the Spanish flu pandemic. And obviously we have, um, we can kind of relate to that pandemic sense. He's really driven on by a number of questions that are posed to him under these circumstances. You know, how can we explain, first of all, he says, how can we explain the fact that soldiers come back from the war and people come back from traumatic experiences and continually repeat them? you know, continually find ways of repeating them in their dreams, in their behaviours. Why do we keep returning to something traumatic? Can it be explained by the fact that we just want to try to master that trauma and overcome it? And, you know, for Freud, that kind of half answers the question, but it's, there still remains this query of, is there something innate in human behaviour which aims at self-destructiveness almost, a kind of a self-death? And he takes this idea along a a number of different ways through biology, through philosophy. And he ends up postulating this notion that, I guess on what you call a meta scale, on a, on a kind of in the very fabric of our being, we're conditioned by, we, we call them instincts, but it's, it's probably better to talk of them as drives, actually. We are driven by two master drives, as it were, two kind of fundamental drives. One is the drive uh, that he calls, that he names Eros, which encompasses all of those activities, the sexual activity, but also all of those aim-inhibited activities that he describes, you know, friendship, social systems, building groups, building society, culture, more generally, as it were, is kind of comes under the umbrella of eros. We have this innate tendency to bind ourselves together into, into bigger collections and he describes that even on a cellular level in the individual that cells you know have this tendency a human body is a combination of of bound cells individual cells you know there's that biological analogy that he uses we also have a parallel or no an opposite drive for death the death drive which is continually trying to unravel all of those comings together the organism is in these terms, it is seeking its own death, seeking a way to die. You know, c- cells die naturally, basically. They, they don't have any outside intervention. And he takes that as a kind of principle that there's, in all human activity, you can see if you uncover the surface. You, you never see the death drive in its purest form, but there's always this antagonism between us wanting to bind together and create greater things, but also destroy them and, 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 and fragment them. After this kind of discovery, you know, it it explains things for Freud, like the idea of masochism, which 
previously Freud had thought was a derivative of sadism, which was reflected back on the self. But it explores this notion of masochism. It explores this notion of, you know, why do we continually repeat, as I said, these traumatic instances? Why do we continually unravel our own things that would benefit us? Why do we continually sabotage ourselves in our behaviours? And also, why do we continually return to things? Freud says that the while the eros is in, is continually attempting to create greater unities and wider unities, the death instinct is always trying to return. In its fundamental state, it's trying to return to an inorganic state, you know, to, to the state that we were in before we were alive. But it's also returns to previous fixations, to previous ways of behaviour, to previous traumas, to previous um, love objects, to previous, you know, so that's how repetition compulsion works it's that sense of wanting being driven to return to something all the time and that works in in conjunction with with eros freud calls civilization a kind of compromise formation a battle a struggle between those two drives so there isn't some harmonious coming together there's there's this continual tension did he have any vision of what a harmonious coming together might be well i mean uh, freud was a you know well known for a healthy as I would call it, a healthy pessimism. Freud, you know, he wasn't a utopian thinker, of course. I mean, he, he started out in treating uh, neurosis and treating patients. That's where psychoanalysis comes from. It comes, begins in the clinic with treating very ill people, paralysed in their psychological activities and their engagement with the world. And it kind of opens out from there, really. I don't think Freud is ever really ever really gives us a vision of a utopian, of a harmonious society in which we can flourish and the death drive can be kept at bay. I think Freud's message is much more that it's the more knowledge that one can have of these internal conflicts of these and that the more awareness that, that one has of the fact that every situation and every um, every attempt to come together and bring things to a better place will, will inherently contain its own destructiveness within it, you know. I think that awareness of that helps us work through those issues when they come out. How does Freudian thought sit among scientists today? One of the things about psychoanalysis that, that one of the reasons why it went out of fashion with the advent of behaviorism, in a way, is the fact that it doesn't fit very well economically, of course, as, as a treatment, as a kind of therapeutic modality. It requires a certain commitment to time. You know, it takes a certain expense. There are not preset goals and targets that one can place upon a patient and an, an analysand as we call them but a patient you know which shows that you know in a behavioral sense that you can kind of quantify in a way how much progress has been made there are places where it gravitates you know that, that science fits very well with it now but also places where it, it finds great tensions that's also been the case all the way through the history of psychoanalysis you know freud was always determined to be included for psychoanalysis to be included under the umbrella of the science or of the scientific worldview as he called it psychoanalysis doesn't need its own worldview because it, it is a science for Freud. But that has always been disputed over the years, there's, there's no doubt about it. Whether we think of science as a, a psychoanalysis as an, in a more scientific sense or in a more, as you were saying, in a, in a, with that relation to literature, to, to humanity, to cultural uh, forms, I think probably it sits somewhere in between those two positions, really. Is it right to say that the Freudian thinker could be pictured more as somebody 
sitting at the, the Freud Museum or sitting in a library surrounded by cultural objects. The Freudian is more of a, a library character rather than a worldly striver. Is that right? Well, it depends what how you define worldly striving, I guess. I mean, I, I think the history of psychoanalysis and, and, and cultural engagement has shown you know, many occasions in which psychoanalysis has been brought to play on current affairs, on social forms. And there is a danger, I think, of, of psychoanalysis with its hermetic terminology, with its perception of it being, as you said, a kind of library endeavour. There is a danger, of course, that it can become that. But but I think that there is enough in psychoanalysis which is revolutionary. I mean, part, part of the reason why psychoanalysis is rejected in some ways is that it does have such a revolutionary aspect to it and it has such a revolutionary view of the human subject. You know, how do we think about someone who is fundamentally divided as a subject? You know, how do you, how do you start thinking politically, socially about someone who can't be characterised under one viewpoint, under a life goal, under what you might call a, a kind of striving in a particular direction? How do you start thinking politically and socially about that? I think one of the things that psychoanalysis gives you is it gives you a set of tools for thinking in a deeper and more complex way that can then be transferred and then be utilised in the social setting. Let's take that complexity back to the subject that brought us here, Freud on the Hebrew Bible. There's an essay by Freud on the Moses of Michelangelo, prompted both by the Bible and by Michelangelo's sculpture. In the essay, Freud's interests in art, religion, and psychology all merge. You know, it was written in, I think, what, 1913, 1914? But Freud had been visiting the tomb of Julius II, the Pope Julius II, from like 1901 or 1900 when he first went to Rome, and he'd, he'd continually be returning to this statue. What Freud does, he gets this idea and he, and he goes with it, and it really shapes his thinking about Moses in the future that what you have with Moses, with this sculpture, is a, an overcoming of instinct. That's the fundamental thing for Freud, that there's this violent instinct to destroy the tablets, to smash them. You know, you, you see the horns, these animal figures that are coming out the head, the kind of muscular frame, the kind of lines across the face. But Freud describes that not as a way of an intimation of violence of the smashing of the of the of the tablets but actually in a way of an individual overcoming their instinct of kind of sublimating instinct that struggle to overcome the animal nature as he saw it of the instincts and rise to a higher position that kind of sublimity we have this you know the the tablets he says are kind of balanced very delicately in the fingers there's this wonderful ambivalence about that statue for freud that gives Freud, in a way, this notion that he'll build on in Moses and Monotheism of Geistlichkeit, of spirituality, of, of inter intellectuality. This way of raising oneself above, you know, the, the immediate demand for instinctual satisfaction. And that's, of course, a, a, a characteristic that he sees very much in himself, I think. And psychoanalysis praises that idea of sublimation. But, it, but he almost, when it comes to Moses and Monotheism, he takes that idea that of Geistlichkeit, of intellectual, you know, advance as a kind of characteristic that Moses brings from Arkhanaten. You know, this, you're not allowed to make an image of God. You know, you, God is, you know, coming from this polytheism to suddenly the worship of the sun, or not even the worship of the sun, the worship of the idea of the sun. You know, that is 
emblematic really of this Geistlich kite. It's also, if you think about a near contemporary, a contemporary Freud's, you know, Arnold Schoenberg, whose opera Moses and Aaron, you know, really captures this notion of, of Moses being almost unable to speak, you know, to, to vocalise. Aaron is, is Moses's mouthpiece, but Moses, because of the intellectual nature of the divine that can't be brought into images, is struggles to be brought into language. So I think Freud really, you know, takes from that Moses, uh, the Moses of Michelangelo, he, he builds on that idea and kind of starts to develop that idea of this characteristic of, of Geistlichkeit. Thank you for listening to Mosaic Mosaic, the third season of the Cosmic Library. Our guests this season include Peter Cole, the poet whose new book, Draw Me After, will be out this fall. Elisa Gabbert, poet and poetry columnist with the New York Times. Her latest book is Normal Distance. Lisa Feldman Barrett, psychologist, neuroscientist, and author of books including How Emotions Are Made. Tom DeRose, curator at the Freud Museum in London. And Joshua Cohen, the novelist whose books include Book of Numbers. This was our Freud extravaganza. Next up, we're thinking about disaster, struggle, and poetic mind practice.